I had already gone through officer candidate school in the military. Yeah. And when you're faced with an unethical situation, you have really two choices in life. You join the unethical path and continue, do nothing, or you abort. You say, no, I'm not yeah. part of this. And I wanted to be no part of an unethical administration. And turns out that was the right decision all along. Mm -hmm. And it took me many years to validate it, but it was validated when I was sworn in as sheriff. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Sheriff Alex Villanueva. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Yourself? Doing well. Thanks for coming on. So... Got to take it back. I assume, you know, the day you're born, you're, you've got the sort of cliche, you're walking around telling everyone there's not enough room in this town for the both of us. Is that how it all started? <laughs> not <laughs> no, quite. but take me back. Where are you from originally? I was born in Chicago. My dad is uh, Puerto Rican, born and raised on the island. My mom was uh, Polish-American. She was second generation. I guess that makes me third generation. Yep. And they met in Chicago and my mom had three kids from a former marriage and we were like the Brady Bunch. So I was the first <laughs> of their marriage and they ended up having three. So we grew up six of us. That's awesome. Moved, as an infant, I moved to Rochester, New York. Uh -huh. My family relocated there. My dad worked at the University of Rochester in a lab in the school, electron microscopy. Mm -hmm. In those days, he served in the Army in World War II in the medical field. And so he kept that going the way they had. Then my mom and him opened a print shop in Rochester back in the 60s. Okay. Got it. And, what, what, uh, what got him to do that? So there's a little entrepreneurial side. Don't know, really. Okay. I have no idea what got him into that. But uh, we ended up relocating in the, in the early 70s to Puerto Rico. Uh -huh. And uh, my mom and dad opened a print shop in Puerto Rico as well. Got it. So he was doing two things. So... We went to uh, Queens, New York for one year when uh -huh. I was in third grade. Went to PS 154. You know, all the schools yep. there are numbered. Yep. That's where I started learning to run. Yeah. You don't want to be caught in those days. So Yeah, uh, that's fair. <laughs> Queens has a reputation. And then uh, fourth in uh, 1972, I was nine years old. My uh -huh. dad wanted to relocate to where he was born and raised on the island. So yep. we moved to Puerto Rico and got dumped into Spanish-only speaking world. And did you grow up with... With a Spanish-speaking dad, did you grow up speaking Spanish as a kid, or was it just, no, not at all? I couldn't count to five in Spanish. Okay, got it. And so you said fourth grade is when you get, ended up down there? Uh, I started fourth grade on the island, yes. Yeah. And so what was that like, like at the time? It's funny, my dad tried to relocate us when I was about that age, and I remember my sister and I threw such a fit, he actually gave up. He was like, all right, we're not doing this, which... 20 years later, I talked to him about like, you had a bunch, an eight and a six-year-old talk you out of doing what you wanted to do. But <laughs> I am curious. Uh, so yeah, how was that for you? I mean, obviously not speaking Spanish is tough, but in general, like when you heard that's what you're going to do, what were your thoughts on Puerto Rico, that sort of change in your life? Well, we went from near the Arctic Circle, Rochester, New York, down to the tropics. So that was a big, a big change. Culturally, yep. language, a big change. Uh, Island, great place to live, hard place to make a living. I think that was a common perception in those days. Yeah. But as little kids, we it was just another big adventure. Yeah. And uh, we, we were there for the ride. So uh, my brothers, sisters, and I, we, hey, we're going to learn a new language and learn to play in a different language, and let's do it. Nice. That's awesome. And 
Growing up, like where, you, you mentioned running, but were, were you like a competitive runner at, in third and fourth grade? Did you actually start running that way? No, I just ran by sheer necessity because yeah, we were the only Puerto Rican family in between a black neighborhood and a Jewish neighborhood. Yeah. So we were like the odd man out always. Yeah. And uh, for some reason, bigger kids wanted to pick on us and it was running either to school or running from school back home because I was too old to be on the bus. My younger sister was on the bus. Yeah. But I had, it was about nine blocks. I had to walk with my older brothers and sisters and, uh, or sister. And uh, so, yeah, that got me running at an early age. Got it. And what, what were your sort of interests growing up? Like where, what were you into up until that point, pre going down to Puerto Rico? In Puerto Rico, actually, uh, my mom enrolled me in a book a month club. Oh. I was a voracious reader. I'd read books, walk into school along the, the dusty uh, Shuricane Field roads. Yeah. With all the rumbling sugarcane trucks and how I got hit, I have no idea because I would read and walk at the same time. <laughs> hey, it's and, a, uh, not a lot of kids can say was, that. Uh, 12 books a year is good. That was uh, fifth and sixth grade. Uh-huh. And then uh, my brother and I were always climbing trees and, you know, climbing rooftops, doing all that stuff. And we started, uh, for some reason, we, we got the fancy of pole vaulting, but we had mm-hmm. no equipment. So we started vaulting with bamboo and jumping fences with bamboo poles <laughs> and that kind of got our interest there and that that became somewhat of a passion in my my younger days all the way through uh through college actually oh really and i got into uh expanded into decathlons and uh i always stayed competitively you know athletically you know competing mm-hmm. and uh and then once i became a deputy baker to vegas running the challenge cup relay race so that's uh, always been a big part of my life. Got it. And so you started with pole vaulting, got into decathlon. And then uh, was that like your main focus through high school? Like you were just, were you like the athletic side of things and the sports side of things? Well, in high school, it was definitely just the pole vaulting. And oh, then, okay. uh, and then in, you know, academically, you know, my brothers and I were straight A students, you know, mm-hmm. we uh, killed the SATs, did everything possible, but we were the, the poor the poor kids in the rich kids at Catholic high school. Got it. So we, um, we really did had no, um, they had a school counselor. I remember that really never paid any attention to us. And <laughs> I wish they had, because with our grades and our SAT scores, we could have gone to any school in the United States Yeah. on a full co- scholarship ride, but that was never explained to us. Got it. And uh, so we enlisted in the local college, you mm-hmm. know, thinking that was the only choice. And, Wound up at the University of Puerto Rico uh-huh. back in 1980. And uh, my older brother and sister were there earlier back in the 76 or 77. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so that was the start of college. And then from there, I wound up in the Air Force and I wound up here in uh, California. Got it. So I was going to ask, when you went to college, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do? Like, you're, did, Were you aspiring for something at that point or were you just like, this is the next step? Well, I was interested in uh, mechanical engineering, which I first signed up for. Mm-hmm. I went through the math courses, but um, it uh, I kind of got, uh, I was more interested in the human side of things. I wasn't very enamored with the whole short sleeve shirt with a pocket liner and all that stuff and all the pens and stuff. And <laughs> slide rulers in those days. I mean, yep. uh, calculators were starting to come out, but really not big. Uh-huh. And uh I wasn't terribly uh, impressed with the idea once I was in the class. And uh, at any point in 1983, 
I joined the Air Force yeah. after Ronald Reagan cut the Pell Grants in half. Uh -huh. He thought they were too generous. And Got it. Puerto Rico, there's no such thing as working part-time and going to school because there's no part-time work to be had. Right. So uh, I wound up at Norton Air Force Base in San Bernardino. Got it. And uh, once I was there for a little bit over a year, I realized, you know, I need to go back and finish college. So I switched from the full-time Air Force to the Air National Guard part-time. Mm -hmm. Then I went to Cal Poly Pomona. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then from there, I... Uh, Applied to the department in the summer of 85 when the Night Stalker was roaming free. Mm -hmm. And in 1986, and I was sworn in as a deputy. So you applied to the, you're talking about the LA Sheriff? Yes. In 86. Got it. So you did a year in the Air Force. And what did you do in the Air Force, by the way? Actually, I did almost two years. It was in, okay. uh, I was on the flight line. I was a fuels specialist. Got so, it. I mean, I pumped gas jet fuel on the airplanes yep got it and had to move fast because they're coming in getting some fuel and getting back out a lot of the times right yeah you don't want to be in the way yeah um and then okay so you go to air national guard and did you stay in that how long did it take you to get through college from there like how long was that period well it turns out i went from full-time to part-time back to full-time again but um you know i had to pay the bills and uh my kid was born in 1985 at the same time yeah. And I uh, wanted to finish school, but I like, when I was in the military, I liked public service. Mm -hmm. I really, really appreciate it. I enjoy doing that. And I figured I'm going to segue now into law enforcement because I can continue that career in public service. I was still in the, in the National Guard. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, I got a 300% pay raise from the military to the sheriff's department. Wow. It was, was kind of, yeah. it was an easy sell, let's put it this yeah. way, back in 1985, 86. Yeah, makes sense. And so, did, so you, did that happen? Like you liked public service, but it wasn't like you had this dream of being a sheriff at the time. Obviously, it's worked out that way. But it was just like, hey, this is more public service and it pays better. Was that part of where the decision came from? Yeah, pays better. More, I could actually, you know, feed my family on my salary. Yeah. Because yep. in the when you're active duty enlisted E three E four, it's uh. It's a very sparse, uh, uh, you know, yep. conditions that you have to live under. So that was a big improvement, and I enjoyed what I was doing. So um, that was the '86 when I came on. Yep. I worked the jails, and then from the jails, I went to East LA Patrol. So worked the jails, meaning what? What did you do in the jails? Inmate reception center was like a processing center where all the incoming inmates off the street. We're processing people transferring to court every day and inmates getting released because at some point you got to release people. Yeah. So that place is like Grand Central Station. Yeah. And I've, where everybody had to come from. And so on that note, when you first joined, was it a little jarring or anything? I mean, you, you know, had this quiet island life, so to speak, then Air Force for a couple of years. And now you're processing, you know, L.A. criminals, so to speak. Like, was there any pause at that point or were you just like, oh, no, this is fine? Um. It was an eye-opener culturally. Yeah. Because when I grew up in Puerto Rico, we lived on the northwest coast, far removed from from crime. Leave it to, you know, leave it to beaver country. Yeah. Same thing in Rochester, New York. I think the shadiest thing I saw was in Queens when I saw, you know, a lot of the school, uh, you know, bullies, things like that. But uh, 
when I saw, you know, real crooks, real gang members up close and personal when I first landed in the jail, that was a little bit of a culture shock. Yep. Take a little bit getting adjusting to it and realizing that they're all scammers and they have different uh, scams that they're always, you know, applying. And uh, definitely it was, uh, it was an eye opener. Yeah, makes sense. And so how long did you do that for? That piece of it? I was there until early 1991. Oh, okay. And then I transferred to uh, East LA Station to go to patrol. Got it. And was that something you were always hoping to get to? Like, was there like during those five years you were gunning for that? Or were you, was it just like, that's kind of the path? Like how, how was that sort of the emotional side of the feelings of that? Well, in, in the department, you have to go from custody to patrol and you have to complete patrol training before you're eligible to basically explore any area that you want to specialize in. And uh, so that's a big stepping stone to complete the field training program. Got it. And how long were you patrol for? I was there for seven years from 91 through 97. Those are interesting years in LA County. (laughs) Uh, Very. Yes. um, uh, Plague, pestilence, earthquakes, riots, fires. Uh, The only thing we met was, I think, the locusts, the swarm of locusts. Seriously. How was that as someone like, and I'm trying to sincerely avoid the politics of this because that's not what I'm really interested in, but I'm curious during a time when you're getting like this sort of bad PR and the riots and everything of 92 and, you know, the 92 LA riots and everything, like how was it being someone newer to the force, newer to the sheriff, watching this, you know, PR thing going on because of a few bad eggs? Like, how was that feeling as you were operating as a younger person in it? Well, working patrol and uh, interacting with the community, you did not get that same sense of what they're portraying on TV. There was a lot closer connection. I mean, there were some hardcore uh, families, multi-generational gang families. You knew that they hate law enforcement no matter what. And it was grandfather, father, son, daughter, and just a bad attitude. Mm-hmm. But even they would call you to referee yeah. a bad dispute or, you know, someone got beat up or they were a victim of a drive-by shooting and they shot up yeah. the house. Even they would still call you. And um, as long as you, you know, you did your job fairly it wasn't really that much of a conflict. It was as a result of the 92 riots and then this whole movement to start delegitimizing and demonizing law enforcement as somehow a scapegoat to all of society ills. It's the fault of law enforcement. Either they didn't do their job or they're overzealous, trigger happy, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah. Became a a whipping boy, so to speak, the profession. It was the same thing in the mid nineties, right? Like post riot. That was a lot of the conversation because I know that's going on right now as well, but that, that was also a mid nineties kind of sentiment, correct? Yeah, pretty much. And then it kind of slowed down and I think things settled down and then until it ramped up again now in 2020, right environment. Yeah. So during that period, as so you were saying, like on the ground in the job, you didn't really experience it. You just you'd see the news or the media kind of thing. But when you were doing your day to day, you didn't experience the sort of, you know, again, the scapegoating of you being responsible for all the people's woes, so to speak. No, people actually appreciated what you did. They thank you. They talk to you. And even in bad situations, they still appreciated the fact that you were there to make Mm -hmm. something bad better. Catch yep. a bad guy, for example, and somebody yep. getting beat up or abused by somebody else. And uh, so there was a sense of a community uh, 
respect and appreciation for the job, even mm-hmm. if they were at the receiving end. And I remember uh, when I worked in the, the Maravilla housing development, the very first community policing effort from the Clinton administration, 1993, got to know all the residents of the, of the entire complex. There was about 500 something units there and over 2000 residents. And even the, the gangsters that we would come in contact with, we arrest on a, on a regular basis. They say, Hey, you know what? We understand you do your job. Mm-hmm. And as long as they, they, they felt they got a fair shake, it pretty much ended there. And, uh, they even, this is a weird part. Some of the gang members would even start taking like ownership. Those are our deputies, you know, they protect <laughs> our community. It was, it was kind of weird. And, yeah. you know, they'd tag you on a wall and say, yeah, we're going to kill you. You know, 187 something, uh, you know, our names. And, yeah. uh, but you know, you hear through the grapevine that they actually appreciated that we were kind of like, uh, just the, like the ref in a baseball game. We're calling the balls yeah. and the strikes and that's our job. And I think we, we reached a, a mutual understanding in that regard. Got it. And so you did that for, as you said, seven years. And then what, what did you do? What was next? What was the next step in the sheriff's department for you? Uh, from there, I went to the sheriff's academy to be a drill instructor, staff instructor. Oh, okay. That was late. Yeah, 97. Whip, whipping some new guys into shape. Uh, whipping the new guys and gals into shape and running around. And, uh, that was a fun job. I did that for three years to the nice. end of 2000. Uh-huh. And, um, then I promoted a sergeant uh-huh. and went back into patrol. Oh, now I'm at a different station. Now I'm at Lennox station over by the airport. Got it. And how was that area? Was, was it like, did you feel stark differences from what I mean, I assume so, but did you, feel like it was a whole different thing or was it pretty much what you expected it to be? You knew LA at this point. So, well, it was a different part of LA and in East LA, 99% Latino, the whole population. So now when we go to Lenox, the Lenox area around the station was heavily undocumented immigrants from Central America. Got it. A lot of people from Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of like a stepping stone when they first arrived, they'd be there. Then they move out, fan out to other places. And then, but West, uh, Westmont Athens over by Vermont area, it mm-hmm. was primarily African-American mixed in with Got it. So I had not seen that in East LA. So I have a different group. And then down in Lawndale, it was primarily white mixed in with Latino. We kind of yeah. had three different groups there in the three areas that we were policing. So uh, Different demographics and different expectations of the roles of, of law enforcement. Do you mind sharing like what kind of those expectations are, like how it differed? Well, you had, again, you had multi-generational uh, families with, with gangs yep. and different ages. You had some very embedded uh, groups. I remember uh, the Hoovers and Underground Crips or the UGs, and they had different, by different block designations and what. And there is constantly fighting and drive-by shootings going on between them. And, uh, and that was sad because that group, and they were primarily fighting. They were in their late teens, 20s, early 30s, that age range. Mm-hmm. But then you went over to the south end on the west side, and it was an older generation of African-American people that they were in their 70s and their 80s. They're manicured long, but they might have that one grandson from hell that, 
you know, they're just constantly dealing with. And I feel yeah. bad for them because they were really like, you could tell they worked hard their whole life, you know, and did everything right. And they probably worked in their aerospace industry back in, yeah. the, in the 50s and 60s. And all those high paying blue collar jobs just kind of started, you know, drifting away and, and left people high and dry without the means to support themselves. Yep. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that nobody talks about like that whole area was that it was all aerospace industry, mm-hmm. you know, housing developments, uh, up until, as you said, the job started going away. So, all right. So you go to Sergeant, you start patrolling sort of the airport area and how does it progress from there? And uh, at any point, was, was it always like, I'm going to do this the rest of my life? Or did you weren't sure? Like, how did you think about yourself as a sheriff throughout this whole period? Well, in 98, when I was still at the academy... I helped Lee Baca run against Sherman Block. I volunteered to run his grassroots operation, doing you know door-to-door canvassing, and uh, it was a good experience. Block was a decent man, but he just stayed on too long, and he lost touch of what the department was doing. And he had some really bad people that he left in charge. So we knew change was important. Of course, we didn't vet our candidate well enough because uh, he turned out to, you know, be who he is but in 98 it sounded like a good idea at the time yeah and he ends up winning however shortly after he won pretty much all of us that were involved in helping him achieve office were pretty much pushed away and uh you know sent to the hinterlands so yeah i that that was a little eye-opener there i guess it was one of those red flags but we don't know it at the time what it meant yeah what he ended up doing, he surrounded himself with some very unethical people that were building him in a little bubble. Yeah. And they did not want anyone that's going to look out either for his interests or for the institution's interests. So we were perceived as threats. Yeah. And um, so we kind of kept our distance. We're not involved. And then, of course, his uh, administration imploded over time. What ended up happening there? Because oh, I'm sure a lot of listeners don't know the story. So what happened with his administration? Well, what happened was he appointed, uh, he had a uh, someone who served as a treasurer of his campaign, a guy mm-hmm. named Paul Tanaka. So when he took office as sheriff, Tanaka was a lieutenant, and he made him ca- captain immediately. Mm-hmm. But Tanaka had other plans, and he had his own ambitions to be sheriff one day. So what he started doing, as soon as he hit the ground running, he was the man, uh, yep. he started recruiting loyal soldiers to his cause to be his loyal uh, disciple, so to speak. And uh, he built a formal array and a small army of these loyal loyalists all around him. And to gain access to Paul Tanaka, you were going to get promoted, but you had to have some flaw. You had to either either been fired or got your job back or face major discipline, but you had to owe you getting your job back or not getting big discipline because of Paul Tanaka. Yeah. So he basically had your pink slip, and yeah. that is who he surrounded himself with. And as he grew in rank, he pulled all these loyalists around with him. So he was building his own, like I call it a shadow administration of Baca. Yeah. And they had uh, little coins, a cigar coin. They made themselves wow. their own little special uh, uh, smoking lounge in the basement patio of the hall of or the sheriff's headquarters in monterey park mm-hmm. you needed to have the coin to get admitted to it and it was a numbered coin oh it was very elaborate wow it's all with taxpayers and, and not that low profile either no not very low profile they're very arrogant 
They yeah. were so assured of themselves. And uh, at this time, by 2003, 2004, as this whole thing started evolving, he was elevated to the rank of division chief in place uh -huh. in charge of admin services division, which includes personnel. Huge, huge mistake. Because now he was in charge of all the testing and all the promotions. Yeah. So you put the fox in charge of the hen house. Yeah. And that's when the corruption started full scale. Uh, one, you had to make a campaign contribution to get a promotion. Or if you got a promotion, you got the answers to the promotional tests. Yeah. And uh, if you were not in the group, then no matter how well you did in the test, you would never get promoted. And I was one of those. So I caught on early on that there was some anomalies going on with the lieutenant's test, and I challenged it. And uh, and I remember other people wouldn't challenge it because they didn't want to ruin their career. I said, but if you have a reason to challenge it, why would you not? Oh, well, they're told basically just don't don't say anything. Yeah. So, and I just wasn't for that. So I challenged it through the administrative process, and I was rebuffed again and again, even though I had the, the facts. Yeah. And one day a little birdie gave me a, a manila envelope that had all of the test scores and all the changes of the test scores. They were literally taking people who had flunked the test and they're changing their oral written scores to make them pass the test and Jeez. they were being promoted. And I had almost aced the friggin' thing and I couldn't get anywhere. Yeah. And so I had all this evidence. This was after you were a lieutenant? No, this is before I was a lieutenant. This is 2000. 2004. Got it. It would take me, I had to take the test four times and I got yep. promoted in 2011, long after wow. my most of my career had passed. Yeah. So uh, they pretty much killed my career. And then in December of 2004, I wrote a memo and I addressed it to all chiefs and all commanders. And I said, yep. what you're doing is unethical. It's yep. going to lead to the downfall of the department and our reputation and it's immoral, and stop doing this. I was laughed at, ridiculed. Obviously, mm -hmm. my career was over. They told yeah. me in, in those uncertain terms. And I was going to say, real quick on that, like, what gave you the guts, the courage, the, you know, just the, the like, the desire to take on that? Because, like, as most know, like, the, the whistleblower, you know, doesn't end up in a good position usually. And if you, by raising your hand, you had to be, you're a smart guy. You knew that that wasn't going to help you in the short term. So what gave, was it just, you just didn't think it was right and wanted to be the one or like, what was it about that, that you felt like you wanted to put your neck out there when no one else did? Well, in the military, I learned, you know, I had already gone through officer candidate school in the military. Yeah. And when you're faced with an unethical situation, you have really two choices in life. You join the unethical path and continue, do nothing, or you, uh, you abort, you say, no, I'm not yep. part of this. Yep. And I wanted to be no part of an unethical administration. Yeah. And turns out that was the right decision all along. Mm -hmm. And it took me many years to validate it, but it was validated when I was sworn in as sheriff and yep. I could say it. And even now when I'm running for reelection, heck of the eight candidates running against me, Five of them were loyal Tanaka followers. Yeah. And uh, it's like it's a disease that doesn't want to die. Yeah. And uh, but I'm in a much better place now because I stood up against corruption. I said, this is wrong. This is not who we are. Yeah. And I need other people to do the very same thing. Yep. 
And so you did this in 2004. What were those next seven years? You know, it, it sounds like it finally worked itself out after seven years, but for those, how quickly did it catch fire that it turned into something that became a problem for them? For um, well, actually they were, remember they had the full weight of the county government yep. at their back helping them. Right. Today, if there was someone that did back then what I did today, yep. oh my God, they'd parade them on their shoulders. They'd put yep. a Brown's effigy in front of the Hall administration. And he'd be yep. doing a multi-million dollar settlement. No, they fought me tooth and nail in every single turn. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing, I was a true whistleblower. Yep. That term somehow never caught on. Got it. They, uh, they created fake uh, investigations against me, literally. Mm-hmm. I filed yep. a claim week one. By week two, I picked up the first case against me. The very next week, I picked up a second case against me, and they were all made up. Yeah. And they found them true, even though the entire thing was made up, they were true. And they created all the documentation that shows that I didn't do my job while yeah. I had already filed. I mean, this is classic. Today, I'm just astonished why the county allowed this to happen. Yeah. The Civil Service Commission. Oh, we see no evidence. We presented all the evidence, the smoking gun. Oh, there's nothing there. Yep. And uh, it was, uh, I took them to court. I f- filed lawsuit in Superior Court. And um, all I wound up was a settlement that got me moved from patrol to a coveted assignment back at the academy as a sergeant. Didn't get promoted. And uh, no, I had to keep taking that stupid test three more times before I got promoted. Yep. And. How long, to, when did Tanaka actually get ousted? Like, when did this hit them? Like, when did it actually catch up to them? Uh, right around 2012, when the Citizens Commission on Jail Violence. Oh, so you, you actually did get promoted when they, and this was still going on. So you, you didn't have to wait till after they were completely out to get promoted, but they finally couldn't. No. Yeah. But they got pretty it. much, they killed my career, run, ran out the clock on my window of when I should be promoted. Yeah. So when I promoted the lieutenant, I already had 25 years on. Right. And um, what happened was um, I had gone to the Board of Supervisors. I presented all this information. I went to the Office of the Independent Review, OIR, Michael Janako, and they just kind of patted me on the head. Oh, you've done a great job here. Yeah, we'll look into it. Yeah, they're still looking into it. Yeah. But along came the Citizens Commission on Jail Violence in 2011 and 12. They started holding hearings. Well, all the people that said there was nothing wrong in 2004 and 2005, they even testified under oath. Then they decided to testify in the opposite, you know, seven years later. Yeah. And then say, oh, yeah, yeah, we uh, altered the scores on the test. But we weren't really trying to hurt the Latinas. We were only trying to help the blacks. And, uh, you know, that all these, oh, yeah. I mean, all these theories, basically, they admitted what they lied about, you know, years earlier. Yeah. And the board knew all of this and they yep. did nothing, which makes yep. them kind of a hypocrite today yep. when they're going after me for actually doing my job. Yeah. And Gascon doesn't do his job. Yeah. And who are they trying to impeach me? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, politics. Are, and that was going to that's we'll get into that in a sec. So 2011, you get to lieutenant what in you know t- 2012 they actually unravel this they it sounds like you know some reckoning comes how to go from there for you when did you become sheriff 
2018. Okay, so what was that? What was that seven-year period from 11 to 18? What was your career like there? Well, 2011, I promoted lieutenant. I go work the women's jail, central okay. regional detention facility. Mm-hmm. So I'm there for two and a half years. We see, the, I see the implementation of the recommendations of this commission yep. in action. Yep. I implemented them. Yep. So we cut force in half my first year. Oh. Four year, 2012, force went down 50%. People started reporting force properly. And there's a thing called the, the Hawthorne effect. When you start looking at things, people change their behavior because they know they're being looked at. Yep. Not because of any policy or anything. It's just, yep. I think you're aware of that. Yep. And so everything changed to the better. I uh, helped a friend of mine, Bob Olmsted, run for sheriff in 2014 when Baca had decided not to run for re-election. Uh-huh. Then everybody came out of the work work to run for sheriff. Tanaka yeah. ran for sheriff, and he was indicted by the feds. <laughs> so in 2006, I helped Ray Leva run for sheriff, and it didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I helped Olmsted in 2014. So now these are three people that I helped run for sheriff. Yeah. Baca, Ray Leva, and Olmsted. Yeah. So in 2017, I know I'm going to retire in 2018 because that, that's when I hit the 55 years of age. Uh-huh. I have 32 years of credible, actually 34 and a half years of credible service. I'm maxed out pension-wise. Mm-hmm. McDonald has no inclination to promote me to captain. Yep. I had written to him and his chief of staff three times. Hey, I'd like to interview for these jobs I'm interested in for captain jobs. Yep. Jobs that I knew I was com- competitively one of the highest and most competitive person for the job. Yep. And all three times they told us, told me, don't even bother. You know, <laughs> who are you? So I said, you know what? And my wife and I sat down and said, you know, let's leave with a bang. We're going to leave in 2018. I think, why don't we do it ourselves? Yeah. And so June of 2017, I announced I was going to run for sheriff. I worked to February of 2018 until I retired. So I was candidate and lieutenant active. Then in 2018, uh, we caught lightning in a bottle and I defeated the incumbent. First time it happened in 104 years. Wow. And what do you think drove that? What was the main reason people wanted... You, was it was it that history of standing up? Well, there was a lot of things that were going wrong with the department. The reforms uh, that McDonald was trying to claim credit for, it weren't his reforms. They were the commission's reforms, and they were implemented mm-hmm. earlier. Yep. The department was falling apart. Uh, it was shrinking because no one wanted to work for the sheriff. He was very vindictive. He was firing everybody he could lay his hands on, Got it. even without cause. <clears throat> Morale was in the toilet. And uh, we were hemorrhaging about 200 deputies a year, getting smaller and smaller. They couldn't fill the classes. And I thought, you know what, we can do a a lot better than this. Yeah. And uh, so I launched the campaign and I called it, you know, we're going to reform, rebuild and restore the sheriff's department. I identified specific policy initiatives. I campaigned on them. And when I became sheriff, I actually executed all these policy initiatives. proposals they weren't just you know pie in the sky let's do this let's no 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 yeah we actually got the body worn cameras implemented we kicked ice out of the jail we did a permanent moratorium we got deputies now to work four years in patrol in their first assignment that's the foundation of community policing yep 
got the community's input in the selection of station unit commanders. So they have buy-in from the community. These are big steps. And they're yeah. also steps for inclusivity because now lieutenants can compete for these jobs. Where in the past, you know, if you weren't in the car, you did not even exist. Yep. Remember, that's like almost 400 lieutenants. Yep. And only a handful of them really had any hope of ever promoting. Now we're giving people, everyone, the chance to compete. That's great. It's working. Yeah. And then um, as a result of it, now we have the most diverse command staff in the history of the department, probably in the nation. 83% of my command staff are women and people of color. 83%. There you go. Which is more representative, especially in LA, of the people they're helping in policing too. Yes. My opponent uh, today, I think he's got 23% of his command staff. Yeah. And an agency that's it's a fraction of the size of the department. Yeah. So you just kind of, just to put it in a perspective. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And so you take over in 2018 and how was, how was, I mean, the first two years, it sounds like you started doing auto reform, but during COVID, during the you know rise of BLM, the protests in LA, all this stuff, like I, I know I've heard LAPD has had a horrible time recruiting since, you know, mm-hmm. really fun, the police became a, line and everybody's talking about that. Have you seen similar challenges on the sheriff's side where it, it's taken away the pride? Like you said, you got into this because you enjoyed civil service and loved that. Has that, have you seen some of that go away because of the scapegoating and the, you know, sort of anger targeted towards police officers right now? In actuality, on our department, we have the exact opposite. Interesting. We don't we don't have a problem recruiting. People want to be LA deputy sheriffs. Uh-huh. The only thing that's causing people to leave the department now is just the workload. Wow. Because we're so shorthanded because of the hiring freeze. Yeah. The deputies are just getting tired of pulling double shifts, you know, multiple times a week. Yeah. Where they're not even seeing their families. So yeah. the workload can be oppressive at times and that that is a problem right there. But our classes are full. Every single academy class is full. My first year, 2019, we hired 1,100 deputies in one year. Wow. And uh, so we did the, I mean, we went the exact opposite direction on McDonald. And yep. we learned a simple a simple lesson, which all employers should know. If you want to recruit people to your job, don't be a jerk of an employer. It's as simple <laughs> as that. It, it is pretty simple, simple but it, people forget it pretty quick. <laughs> they cannot figure that one out for the life of them. Yep. Don't be a jerk. Yeah, I should put that in. In fact, next time I do a, 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 a any conference with, a, I'm going to put that on the chalkboard. I think that's a good idea. Good. Yeah. And so, fast forward now, we're in 2022. You've made it through this crazy time in law enforcement. I mean, I know that even the crime numbers of LA, and you've had a couple sort of media highlights. You, you know, while the city council, I'll say this as a citizen and a resident here, while the city council, frankly, had their thumb up their butt trying to figure out what to do with the homeless problem, you kind of came in and helped clean up a lot of it. And um, you've made some moves. Uh, Where does your sort of motivation come from now? Like, is it just, I want LA to be a safe and clean place and that's what I'm going to run for? Like, what is that big driver for you personally? You've had a long career now. What keeps it going? Well, you got to realize that L.A. County is, uh, lack of a better term, let's call it a huge ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And one of the drivers of the economy in L.A. is tourism. Mm-hmm. $18 billion a year industry. It employs hundreds of thousands of residents of L.A. County. 
It is literally the golden goose. Yet we're trying to kill the golden goose. Yeah. By our incompetence, by our indifference, mm-hmm. whatever causes us to think that, well, there's nothing we can do about the homeless. In Venice alone, when I set foot on Venice, that's 340 businesses. That's 10,000 jobs. Yep. And it's the second highest tourist destination next to Disneyland in all of Southern California. Yep. And the city of L.A., the mayor, Mike Bond and the councilmen were just going to yep. eh, and yep. walk away. And, and it was just mind boggling that they would allow that to occur. Yeah. And there was no excuse for it. So we went there on June 7th. We had complaints, letters, emails. We saw the YouTube videos. Yep. Horrifying conditions. I go there on June 7th of 2020, last year, and it is as horrible as they said it was. Yep. They did not underestimate it at all. We saw it with our own eyes. They go, wow, we need to do something. Fortunately, the California Constitution gives the authority to the sheriff to actually intervene when local law enforcement and local government refuses to do their job and it comes and the, yes, the lives and livelihoods or people are at stake. We can intervene. In fact, it's government code sections, 26, 600, 601 and 602. And, um, it's kind of worth the the um, foresight of that's amazing that, you know, who knows when that was written or you probably, you might know, but I don't know when it was written, but it's probably the fact that just, you know, history repeats itself that there are going to be times where there has to be checks and balances. And when you have a, you know, city council that's frozen in their decision-making on a problem, which is what I've experienced here with the homeless problem. It's not a financing issue. It's a decision-making issue that it's nice that we have, you know, a constitution that allows for someone else to be like, well, I'll make the move then. Yeah. So here, look, I just pulled up 2,600. Yep. The sheriff shall preserve peace and to accomplish this object may sponsor, supervise, or participate in any project of crime prevention, rehabilitation, or persons previously convicted of crime or the suppression of delinquency. That yep. is a huge. Yep. And literally, my huge. job as sheriff is not to be sheriff for parts of L.A. County. It's the yep. sheriff of L.A. County. Yep. The politicians on the board or other people say, no, you're just your jurisdictions and leave everything else out. Yeah, yeah, I could I could do that and just look the other way. But at the same time, I know people are suffering. Yep. And they're in L.A. County. Yep. So I took the responsibility, made a decision and it worked. Yep. No, it definitely did. I definitely celebrated that day because it's uh, yeah, we can get I, again. I'm trying to avoid the political side, but I've tried to be active with other members that have just been named on this podcast. And it was sad to see the indifference, which is the great choice of words for this. The public statements, and then the action-driven indifference, so to speak. So two more questions for you. Number one, what's next? You obviously are running for this you know, next cycle, so to speak. Is this something mm-hmm. you want to do for a long time? Do you think this might be your last election? Or what, what do you want to do for LA? I'm just curious what's coming down the pike for you. Well, I'm trying to stabilize uh, the department. I mean, the defunding efforts have really hurt public safety. Mm-hmm. And my job is to get our workforce back up to the 18,300 mark that it was in 2019. Got it. And really, that's going to help us with homelessness, with yep. violent crime. I yep. mean, we're making huge inroads on taking bad guys to jail that need to go to jail that are hurting people. Yep. And we got a really good track record of you do something stupid, we're going to find you yep. and hold you accountable. Now we have the zero bail schedule is gone. So now people are staying in jail. That's, I didn't realize I was going. That's good to hear. My, 
jail count is starting to rise as a result of it. Yeah. I only have a little bit of room left to accommodate that. Yeah. And uh, we need to get back to fighting crime the right way. We need to continue partnering with the community, preventing kids from engaging in crime in the first place. Yeah. So on the prevention side, there's a lot more we can do. But I have, I'm down to a skeleton operation in some areas because of the defunding. Yeah. So we need to reverse that course and get it back on track. And this job is, you know, is, is, is a wearing physically is to be governor, to be president in a sense, because there's yeah. so much things happening at once that I would not want to make this a life, a lifelong thing like uh, Biscalus or pitches or blocked it or yeah. Bach. I have no desire. No, I want to. I don't want to have a life after being sheriff. Yeah, but I got to finish the work I started. Definitely, it takes more than four years. I mean, as a voter, that's always like the career politicians are what worry me. It's the people that want to come and make change and move on are the ones that you want to get in there. So, again, great to hear. Um, and so, last question for me: for someone else trying to pursue any career, any dream. I mean, you literally have made it to the top level of your vocation. And that's one of the great things about having you on here. What would be your piece of advice to someone that whatever that thing they're getting into, whether it's to be a sheriff and they want to be the sheriff of their county or whatever else, what would be one piece of advice that you either got that was really helpful that you wish someone had told you to kind of get you through this to this point? Probably the best piece of advice I can give people is learn when not to listen to other people. <laughs> people are always going to tell you what you can't do and don't don't convince yourself because other people are telling you you can't do something yep. understand your goal put it down in writing chart a path towards where you want to go and take those steps and you realize you take the first step the second step sooner or later you're going to be up and running and there's going to be people all along the way telling you you can't do it you know how many people told me that I was a fool to run in 2017 Oh my God, who does he think he is? You know, all of that nonsense. But you know what? No. If you do your homework, you know what you're getting into and you have a, a good plan, go for it. Because you're going to be better off even trying, even if you fall short, yep. far better than 20 years later. Man, I should have this or should have that. No, yep. bullshit. Go for it. Well, Sheriff Fonueva, this has been awesome. Thank you for coming on Hawk Talk. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.